I'm here with Luke Baudouin, President of COGZEST and Adjunct Professor of Education at Simon Fraser University based in British Columbia, Canada. Luke is currently running the Cognitive Productivity Research Project at Simon Fraser, investigating psychological questions regarding knowledge worker cognitive productivity. Luke has a PhD in Cognitive Science from the University of Birmingham, where he conducted research on computer modeling of goal processing and motivation. Over the course of his career, Luke has held a number of positions in many very different fields. For example, he worked as a technical writer for Tundra Semiconductor, as a senior software developer for Abattis Systems Corp., and he was assistant professor of military psychology and leadership at the Royal Military College of Canada. Luke is the author of numerous scientific publications on a wide range of problems in cognitive science. One of his most recent publications is his LeanPub book, Cognitive Productivity, The Art and Science of Using Knowledge to Become Profoundly Effective. In this interview, we're going to talk about Luke's research interests and his book, and about his experiences using LeanPub. We'll also talk about ways we can improve LeanPub for him and for other scientific and academic authors. So thank you, Luke, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. It's my pleasure. Uh, just to start out, can you um, tell me a little bit about how you first became interested in cognitive science? Oh, we're going back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 1980s. Um, I was a psychology student, and I was set to my career path was to become a, uh, a clinical psychologist, and I uh, was taking a neuroscience course, and uh, that uh, had me broadening my horizons a little bit, as university does uh, to students. And I um, was uh, very interested in neuroscience with this uh, course I was taking, and I worked in a neuroscience lab. Uh, we were studying the, um, the neural basis of, uh, of uh, motivation and reward. And um, so that basically opened me up to all kinds of possibilities. And uh, I took a philosophy course, an epistemology course. It was a requirement at the University of Ottawa. Um, and there I discovered cognitive science. And that really intrigued me. So cognitive science is uh, basically the study of the human, bi- human mind and the uh, kind of uh, reference model that we use for that or the way of thinking that we use is uh, information processing. So it's not that the human mind is a, is a digital computer, but that uh, it's, a, it's a device that could be understood as something that processes information. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, it's also a, um, it's an approach to the human mind that recognizes that um, it's, uh, the human mind is too complicated to be studied just from one perspective. So there's no one discipline that's um, that's uh, constitutive of uh, cognitive science. It kind of owns cognitive science. So we okay. often think of psychology as being that which uh, you know studies the human mind. But actually, there's many contributing disciplines to this cognitive science thing. Um, so there's uh, uh, artificial intelligence. There's philosophy, linguistics, um, and other disciplines. You know, neuroscience contributes as well. So, uh, anyways, to make a long story short, <laughs> I. Um, um, I just I just fell in love with the idea, and there was a professor there called uh, Claude Lamontagne, who's just uh, an amazing professor. And I was told, Luke, you have to take Professor Lamontagne's course on perception. So I was taking cogn- I was going to take cognition, and I took perception in addition to that. So beyond the requirements, I took that course. And uh, I guess they knew that uh, he and I would really hit it off, which we did. And uh, he. Uh, he has a tendency to blow people's minds, and uh, he, he that he did with mine, and he mine, and he basically convinced me that that the, this was the way to understand the human mind is basically using um, information processing as as a kind of metaphor. Um, yeah. Speaking of the connection between cognitive science and psychology, um, you mentioned you've mentioned online that your PhD thesis and your honors thesis 
diverged from empirical psychology's approach to the issues you addressed in your theses. That's um, right. And you, and you instead used a designer approach. Um, That's can, right. Can you explain what you mean by a designer approach? Okay, so the idea is that um, if we're to understand the human mind with this approach, basically, we have to kind of, uh, in a sense, reverse engineer it. So we think of what are the requirements that this system uh, kind of implements, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we typically we don't look at the entire human mind. Some of us do look at the big architecture of the human mind, but typically people focus on perception or uh, linguistic processing, and usually some, some very specific aspect thereof. But basically, we, we proceed um, as engineers would basically understand first what are the requirements of, of a system, and then uh, we propose any designs to implement, uh, to, to satisfy those requirements. And then we move on beyond that to developing computer programs that implement those designs. <laughs> And then uh, we actually press the run button, the compile button and the run button, and we find out, well, you know what, this doesn't exactly do what I thought it would. Uh, it actually, it doesn't compile. Or more typically is you don't even get to the point of being able to write your program because what this does is it exposes gaps in your understanding. Um, and, uh, but, you know, you move along and you do try to run these simulations, and then you can actually test your predictions in one way or another using, a, using a, your computer program. So... Um, and then what you do is you, you try to you, you study the relations between these different levels. So you you know by going through this whole process, you find out that well you maybe didn't understand the requirements properly. So you have to you know you have to study that in more detail. Your design wasn't right, um, and and so on. So this is basically it's an engineering stance which involves some reverse engineering to understanding the human mind. So I had uh, coincidentally I'd taken a I'd taken a psychological assessment in my first year of university in psychology, and I said, you know, have you ever, did you ever consider being an engineer? And I thought, well, what are you uh, talking about? I'm in psychology. <laughs> what are you talking about? I want to do therapy and understand the mind. Well, then, basically, later I realized that this person, was, this psychologist was spot on, that, but I just didn't know it was possible to study the human mind using engineering methods. That's, that's fascinating. Is that um, still something that you carry on with you in your work for the Cognitive Productivity Research Project? Yes, if you read my book, you'll see that um, uh, that I I do delve into that. And uh, as a matter of fact, I I think it's kind of generally useful for people to have a um, a working model of themselves and and each other, um, and to think of you know the components of ourselves and what they do. Um, so it helps us understand you know all kinds of things. Our, our emotions, each other's emotions, how people respond, etc. So we, you know, we kind of have to do this anyway. Whatever reference model we use, we have to think about ourselves and our behavior and what implements it, right? And uh, but cognitive science gives you a way of uh, some new concepts to uh, to think about uh, ourselves and uh, to think about e about each other. Um, yeah, and it's a point I make in the book. Basically, is that um, we've you know, natural language has provided us with concepts and ways of thinking about about psychology, and that's called folk psychology, and it works very well hmm. most of the time, but there's all kinds of limiting cases. And if you want to go beyond that, then you enter into the realm of cognitive science. Yeah, and actually, I wanted to talk about your book um, uh, later on, so I'll ask you okay, some questions sure, about sure, that sure. Um, uh, specifically, and, and when you talk about, um, uh, yeah, some of people's misperceptions about impacts that technology can have of the mind. But um, before we do yep. that, can, can I ask you yep. um, a little bit about what, what Cogzest does um, and the story of how you founded it? 
Sure. Cogsys is an ambitious enterprise. Um, the project actually started in 2002. It had a different name. Uh, but um, I um, had worked, I basically switched domains many times. And you always bring some knowledge with you when you switch domains, but you also have to do a lot of learning. So as you mentioned, you know, I, you know, I started in psychology, then I was doing artificial intelligence for the, my PhD, cognitive science. And then I was teaching psychology at the military college with, you know, some courses that I hadn't even taken myself. So it kind of had to come at the speed uh, quite wow. quickly on that. And that, that happens. That's typical for a professor to do that. Um, and, um, uh, and then I've worked as a technical writer and all these different things. So I'd gone through this um, intense, very intense uh, series of learning cycles and, um, you know, culminating at Abattis, uh, which was where I was uh, the first employee. And uh, we set up this company, and we had very ambitious objectives for it. And uh, we were all just learning lots of stuff. I was the person probably had to learn the most in the early days because of my, my background being different. They think they uh, wanted somebody who was um, um, a startup, more of a startup expert, because I had done a startup before. So I've proven I can uh, work on multiple, you know, in different parts of the business. So, um, so I was actually the first and I had to learn about, uh, you know, internet protocol and routers and all these things. I had to basically absorb um, uh, lots of functional, lots of uh, specifications, IETF documents, internet, internet Engineering Task Force documents. And those, for a lot of people, including myself, that was new, it was new stuff at the time, right? The RFCs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to absorb this, uh, as did other, other people. And I, it just occurred to me that... Um, the technology wasn't really supporting us in our in the learning we had to do. We would we had these specs and we we'd print them out. So the printer was very very busy at about us. Hmm. And people, although uh, the founders had ensured that we had the best technology, we had very fast computers and we had the best monitors available, CRTs in those days, right? But still, we'd print out these documents and we'd we'd highlight them and mark them up. And so it occurred to me as I was going through my learning process at about us that you know, somehow there's something wrong with the browsers and PDF readers that we're, they're not supporting our learning if we're printing. Right. So, so I thought to myself, you know, there's got to be a better way. And uh, obviously from having a cognitive science background, uh, I had some ideas about what those ways might be. And, uh, and so when about, after Battis was acquired and as things go, the, uh, the our parent company started to implode. So I, um, I started thinking about what to do next, and I had a lot of projects in mind. And the one that appealed to me the most was basically mel- uh, bringing together cognitive science and technology to solve the problem of basically helping people learn with cognitive science and with technology. So, I, I, uh, my goal was to develop. Um, it was to understand first of all what would be required. Again, the engineering approach, right? Well, right. what should what would technology look like to better support our learning as experts now? So I wasn't looking at children's learning and high school learning. I've, my, my interest since 2002 has mainly been, or 2001 has mainly been adult learning, thinking that we can then go back and help students with that. And I think that's true. Um, so was, how can we help uh, experts at the top of their game learn? Um, so I wrote some specs and so on, and I uh, uh, started a business, basically a business. I was writing a business plan, all kinds of functional specs, that kind of stuff. Hmm. And then I, I, I uh, met a, a professor called Phil Winnie, who was studying self-regulated learning from a psychology perspective, educational psychology perspective. 
and uh, he had done a software project before, and he wanted to continue doing that. Oh, he was doing another one at the time, so he basically invited me to join him. So we decided to join forces, and uh, I brought the Cogs. CogSci Plus technology. He had the educational psychology and uh, had done some technology work as well. And we had business aspirations. So we decided to work together and that we did. And we spent, um, you know, up to 2000 and the end of 2009 working together on various products, um, which did part of this. Okay. That's the story. <laughs> okay. No, it's great. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, startup life is, is fun. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got actually, speaking of fun, um, I was looking over your um, list of publications and I can see yep. that you've co-authored the introduction to a forthcoming book called From Animals to Robots and Back, Reflections on Hard Problems in the Study of Cognition. Um, that's just a fascinating title. Can you explain a little bit about what the book's okay, about? Okay, well, what that's about, actually, um, I think the way I put it is that I've been invited to co-author, and, and, but I haven't actually written okay. that document okay. yet. I'm co-authoring um, okay. is the idea here. Um, the... Um, what, what's going on here is a uh, volume uh, of uh, papers for Professor Aaron Sloman, who's uh, had his Festschrift, uh, which is a celebratory um, conference and, and, and a book being prepared for him uh, in 2011. So he, he was my PhD thesis supervisor um, at, uh, at, um, at, uh, at the University of Birmingham, where I did my PhD. So we uh, basically decided that... Uh, this uh, warranted uh, this warranted a book, and uh, the book is a collection of um, papers from his various students and people who worked with him, etc. Um, so, uh, I've also what I've got is a paper on. Uh, I've got a paper that uh, um, the title of which is uh, I can give you. I think it's on the website, um, which is basically explores learning in um, learning with technology. So the project that I'm currently on. Okay. You've also written about um, super somnolent mentation. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just had, I had a lot of fun reading your, your list of publications and just yes, thinking yes. about it. Um, so I, I did read a little bit of it, but can you explain a little bit about what super somnolent mentation is? How funny you should ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, okay. So uh, again, this is, an, this is, you can think of this as a proof, proof of concept for cognitive science. So uh, the problem that I address in that paper is uh, reducing sleep onset latency. So many of us have limited contact time with our beds, <laughs> whether we've got insomnia or not. Just like, let's say you've got seven hours in bed, or you give yourself seven and a half hours. Well, you need, let's say you need seven or seven and a half hours. So in order to get enough sleep, you basically have to sleep all the while that you're in bed. Well, typically it takes people, whatever, 15 minutes, sometimes 45 minutes or more to fall asleep. So the problem I've been addressing, one of the kind of my background problems over, over 20 years is uh, how could we reduce that sleep onset latency? And um, I think I found a way. Um, Great and, news. And that, that, <laughs> yes, yes. Because it's not just the initial sleep onset that's the problem. Is if you know by the time you get thirty-five or something, you're waking up in the middle of the night, <laughs> you know, and then yes. you've got to go to sleep. So then you've got to go through this cycle twice. So um, so I thought, well, this is a really interesting problem. Let's solve it. Um, so. Uh, there, to, to make a long story short, I, I, I developed uh, this, this theory, which basically said um, that if I could get people into a state that's very much like the state, the mental state that they're in as they fall asleep successfully, hmm. right, might be part way to helping them uh, actually fall asleep. So that was one part of it. 
uh, of the, well, that's kind of one angle on it. The other thing was to, um, basically I, I distinguish between different kinds of thinking that happen at sleep onset. So, or the cabin at any time, basically. So I distinguish between a somnolent thinking. So somnolence has to do with falling asleep. Right. So a somnolent basically means that's neutral, uh, um, to sleep. Often we have uh, kind of um, insomnolent mentation, right? So insomnolent is the kind of stuff that keeps you up. So this is, mo- this is what most of the psychology techniques aim to um, help you uh, deal with, basically. You know, if you're going to sleep and thinking about problems or problem-solving, planning, etc., that's incoherent. With, that's inconsistent with falling asleep. Mm. That's so, not a- so, so overcoming a negative thing that's preventing you from getting what you yeah. want. Yeah, so that would be count. That would be to overcome that is counterinsomnia, right? Right. So most of the psychology deals with counterinsomnia stuff. So I thought, well, really, if we want to do something which is better, let's combine the counterinsomnia with with something that actually takes you over the edge. Which because let's say med- take meditation for instance. So that's a technique that's sometimes advocating advocated for helping people fall asleep. Now, meditation actually, if done right, does not put you over the edge into sleep. It actually is a very focused state. You're alert. You're not supposed to fall asleep if you do it well. So, um, but it does deal with the mm. insomnolent mentation. If you're doing it well, you're not bothered by your uh, by these insomnolent thoughts. So, um, so I uh, propose that um, you know there's certain features of of somnolent somnolent. Um, Mentation that really take you over the edge, and that um, you know that involves basically uh, having very disjointed thoughts and uh, imaginations, imaginings going on. So your mind, and as a matter of fact, if you wake somebody up who's falling asleep, um, you'll find that they're um, they're having kind of these random memories and images and thoughts. Mm-hmm. So now the trick is to get people to uh, into that state, and that's one of the things I think I cracked with that with that paper. And uh, we're actually working on a little product that implements that. Oh, fascinating! It helps people. That helps people implement that, and that's going to be out uh, very soon. Speaking of um, disjointed thoughts, I'd just like to return return to your book. Um, yes. Uh, you, you were sorry for having changed the subject abruptly, but you were bumping up against something. A great quote I found in your book that I wanted to to ask you about, um, which is where in, in near the beginning you talk about um, public epistemic over exuberance. Um, I don't, maybe you don't remember that line, but I, I, I really liked it. You're talking about, um, Steven Pinker and, um, claims about, um, how the internet can rewire our brains by Nicholas Carr. And, hey, that's pretty good. You found like that, that in the footnote. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I think that, um, that, um, sometimes, um, there's people are, get a little bit excited about neuroscience. And I think neuroscience is great. It's something to, be, to get excited about. But we sometimes get overexcited um, and we lose sight of, you know, the way progress happens for the most part, um, I think, in, in cognitive science. So, um, you know, if there's a lot of people are kind of pushing, um, you know, brain-based education right. and that kind of concept. Um, and they're not being called on it very often. So I thought my book basically does a bit of calling, right, and saying, look, um, it's very difficult. I mean, there are certain there are some things you can do at the brain level to, um, you know, take some barriers out of education. There's no doubt about it, um, you know. But I think it's important to separate levels, just as we do with right. computers. We have a very, you know, the computer metaphor is really powerful. 
Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's used um, at a high level, but it's often uh, not exploited as much as it should be. Because in computer science, you have very clear ideas of what levels you're operating with. The, there's the TCP IP, right, stack. It's a very clear uh, collection of levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so in psychology, sometimes that gets blurred a little bit. So, uh, you know, you can do things to improve your brain, like exercising is absolutely, uh, you know, it's very important. It's critical for brain health, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nutrition, you know, but those those are, are fairly indirect. So they give you some enablers, um, but... Uh, but uh, the, the information processing level is is different non, is different nonetheless so that's i think um what i'm getting at yeah, there yeah it's very very timely there was um um an, a great article in the new york review of books a couple of months ago um a review by colin mcginn of a book by um a french neuroscientist who was right. sort of moving into the philosophical realm um, more than McGinn believed he should. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's discussing exactly this and there's, I just wanted to draw your attention. There's a, there's a fascinating, um, yes. uh, exchange between them in the letters section of the latest issue where they talk precisely about what, 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 what you're talking about. Um, Great. yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually funny, um, <laughs> to, <laughs> to see, to see the contrast between the, um, the neuroscientist and the, um, philosopher who's sort of calling him on, yep. on a lot of these claims. Um, yeah, and that's the that's the that's one of the reasons that you're the the, the epistemic overexuberance, which um, would perhaps apply not only to um, to the public but also to to neuroscientists themselves often. Right. So yeah, and without wanting to, you know, it's not being critical of you know uh, anybody in particular. I, I worked very hard on that footnote because one has to be careful what one says. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but but you know that the quote I have by Pinker there, I think he's just. He's just got a great quote. I invite people to read the book just to get Pinker's quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so so um, on the broader subject of the book, yeah. um, you talk about meta-effectiveness. Um, yes. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. Actually, that's really what the book's about. <laughs> okay. So um, meta-effectiveness is basically a matter of becoming more effective at becoming effective. So essentially the problem, the main problem that I address in this book is how do we become more effective as take, at taking information on the input side, right? So a knowledge resource, I refer to them as knowledge resources. It could be a book, podcast, a lecture, um, it, you know, it could be um, any kind of, it, it could be any piece of information that has, you know, conceptual artifacts in it. So ideas that are packaged up by somebody to help us learn something, right? So that's the input side. And, and how do we use that information to get to the other side. Well, what is the other side? You know, we've got to specify, again, if we're looking at requirements here, we've got to think of, well, what are we after? So we're after, well, often we just want to be able to remember something or want to be able to um, develop some understanding of the thing or you want to develop a skill, if it's a programming skill or whatever, um, and you want to be able to apply it when the time comes, etc. So in the book, I look at these different outcomes, basically, and I ask myself, well, how do we connect the how do we connect the input side to the output side? So that's really a, a problem that we face when we pick up a knowledge resource. Now, when we're using knowledge resources, you know, we have uh, we often just want to, um, you know, to solve an immediate problem with them with 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 that knowledge resource. So it's not as if we always want to use knowledge to become more effective, um, you know, in general, right? Or, or 
or disconnected from the resource, right? But sometimes we do, and we call that learning. Learning is kind of the, um, it's, it's, it's a word that's used for all kinds of things, including this, this problem of, of um, say, developing understanding from, from information that we read. So, so the book really says, <clears throat> poses this meta-effectiveness problem. You know, how do we become better at becoming effective? Okay, okay. So, and um, can, but, you, can you give us an example of one of the, I don't want to give away the whole book, but, sure, sure. Um, but maybe one of the techniques or tools for achieving um, better meta-effectiveness might be? Okay, well, um, sure. Um, I mean, the, the, the book deals with a lot of the processing of, inf- the, you know, the problems we face, just processing information. And, uh, and that's like, if you look, I should maybe say something about the structure of the book in order to um, sure, sure. put this put this into some context for people who are listening, is that the book, in the first part, we, we characterize the problem, including this problem of meta-effectiveness, right, and the roadblocks that we face in solving this problem. In the second part of the book, we deal with, I deal with the science that I think is most relevant to this problem. And in the third part, I deal with, applic- with applications, basically with, you know, there's all kinds of concepts and tips and um, workflows and, solutions for uh, for using information to become more effective okay and uh, at in the last two chapters I really focus in on the um, the problem of you know applying and sometimes remembering information and that there I developed a concept there called productive practice and it's uh, basically an extension of some important concepts and findings in cognitive science have to do with the importance of uh, using test, or testing ourselves in learning. That's called test-enhanced learning. And then okay. there's um, there's this concept of deliberate practice. So if you look at experts in performance disciplines, like a pianist or a uh, a, a golfer, so an athlete or a musician or some artist that performs for the public, they do a lot of practicing, right? Mm-hmm. So and that's basically. Very, it's understood to be very. It's essential, basically, for expert performance. Now, knowledge workers also practice in their own ways, but it doesn't tend to be as systematic. Um, uh, we, but we on uh, as as students, we a lot of us use practice, right? Or current students use uh, practice as a way of learning. So they test themselves. They might read a chapter and then write down the questions that they need to uh, be able to answer without reference to the material in order to have mastered that material, right? So, and then they test themselves on that. That's actually quite a good way of, um, of learning content, right? Mm-hmm. And learning all kinds of things, learning, developing skills as well. That's a very so, great connection um, between something we're, we're familiar with, which is practicing for sports or things we do with our bodies, but don't necessarily think often about doing with matters of the mind. That's right. Yeah. And, and, but, but again, as students, we, students do this and they kind of have to, Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the, you know, it's not that everyone, there are studies on this, and about 30% of the students, say, test themselves systematically as part of their way of learning, okay? okay? But, you know, student learning, one of the things I draw attention to is that student learning is different from knowledge worker learning. For instance, there, you know, students become very skilled at figuring out what's going to be on the exam, what am I going to be tested on, et cetera. And right. then they adjust, they adjust all their, men, a lot of their mental work towards those aims, and that's mm-hmm. great. You know, it's, it's good if you can, as a student, also think beyond that. And there's ways of doing that, of learning to get you down the long haul. But that's a different story. Um, so, so, so many students will learn these tricks and then um, graduate 
and but then practice kind of drops out of it we it's not that it drops out of it we still practice for instance if you're given a presentation you may very well rehearse it um if you're um learning a computer programming language you might do a whole bunch of practicing in order to build up your skills etc but but um for the most part we don't have a very systematic way of practicing as knowledge workers and there's many reasons for that one is that you know there's a lot of information to learn uh, another is so. What do you practice? Uh, another another problem is um, th- there's you know the tests of life are kind of flash exams. And they're they're implicit. You don't ex- know you don't exactly know when they're going to come, how they're going to come, etc. Um, and uh, another problem is um, we you know that it seems to me that the uh, tool developers haven't really caught on, haven't really made the connection that I'm trying to. Uh, explain in this book, which is that to master information and to master stuff, you really do need to practice and systematic practice is, is, can be very beneficial. So this is one of the things I, I kind of realized in 2001 and two is that, well, we still don't have these tools to help to test ourselves on what we, what we're learning. Um, and I had previously developed tools on this uh, for this, like in 1991, 92, in Smalltalk. I had developed my first tools because I fell upon this kind of way of learning in, in the 1980s. I realized it was quite potent. So to make a long story short, you know, if you could find a way to test yourself on key information, which I call knowledge gems, as okay. you're learning, then that could be very useful. One of the reasons why it's useful is that it changes your, your way of looking at a document. So all of a sudden, you're looking for knowledge gems. You're saying, okay, what do I want to do with the information? Is there something in this document that is so useful that I could actually become a better person with this information? I could become, you know, I could solve all kinds of problems on the fly with this information, or I can avoid problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I give some very potent examples, I think, from other researchers of things that, you know, really helps to know these things. So... So it makes you focus on these knowledge gems, and then it gives you a way of of exploiting these knowledge gems. On the subject of making, oh, sorry, yeah, and that's through practice. So I to fully answer your question, I have to say, yeah. well, basically practicing with uh, yourself with challenges is a way to do it. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say on the subject of um, making better tools and people who are making them, you've got a tantalizing little story in your book about how you once um, wrote a white paper for Steve Jobs on how Apple could better support cognitive productivity in its products. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you tell tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, what happened was, um, you know, because I had been in, working in this space for a long time, uh, the space of uh, using technology to learn, um, w- you know, we all knew that it, it, in approaching 2010, we all knew that Apple was working on a tablet. That was no secret. Um, and, of course, we were all speculating on what would it be. So I thought, well, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I think I should document what I think it should be, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I, um, in, I was interacting with uh, folks at Sharp Brains, and, um, and now I proposed or they proposed a paper. So I said, why don't – or some, something on the iPad. And uh, I said, well, why I, I can do a piece on, you know, what the, um, what the iPad should have to support um, – I think at the time I, I pitched in terms of cognitive fitness – which actually ended up okay. being titled, titled Brain Fitness, which contradicts what I'm saying in terms of the levels. So, um, 
I've uh, I felt uncomfortable about that title for a while. But anyway, hmm. um, <laughs> but it was really about really it was about cognitive productivity. So I I wrote a paper I wrote a, something for Sharp Brains, and that's publicly available. Saying you know okay. here's some things that I'd love to see in the iPad. But um, and then when the iPad came out, it blew my mind. I was really impressed. Um, and, but I thought you know still some things missing. So I wrote a review of the iPad in light of what I had previously written. So I said, look, it's got a lot here, but here's some things that are still missing. And um, uh, basically what I felt in a nutshell was that, you know, the iPad is a platform, you know, just taking the I- iOS basically. So I don't, it wasn't even called iOS in those days, right? To taking the iOS, the, 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 the iPhone operating system and slapping it onto a bigger device. I thought it just blew my mind. That's so beautiful. Um, and, and I thought, well, you can do tons with this. But, you know, it still hasn't been done. So I, I then said, well, you know, I've, I, I can keep trying to do this myself or I can go to the top here. So I, um, I offered uh, um, some kind of collaboration with Steve Jobs, um, and, uh, including a white paper. And he, said, he, he wrote me back and said, sure, send me a white paper on it. Great. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought, that's well, exciting. that's pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and he, I, I knew, I mean, people knew basically, if you're in the Apple world in those days, you'd know that occasionally Steve Jobs would answer people he didn't know, right? And, I, and he ex- it's explained in his biography why he would do that. He had the similar similar experience in the 70s of being on the asking end. So, um, so yeah, I spent the most exhilarating week of my life writing a pretty hefty white paper for... Uh, for Steve Jobs, basically um, collecting a lot of my thoughts from the last ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, yeah. So I did that. Great. Uh, but that's not a public document, so I'm not. Uh, that's okay. not going to be public. But I, I decided after he passed away, with different stories coming out, and um, how he approached innovation, that I thought, well, it's this is a this this is a story that's worth sharing. I'm not making a big deal about it, but it's a it's a nice little anecdote, and it it speaks to um, you know a, a beautiful aspect of Steve Jobs that he would. Um, you know, accept uh, uh, to interact in this way with some person that he didn't even know. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing to do. Um, um, uh, actually, on the on, so that you mentioned um, when some things are public and some of your writings aren't. Um, so that's a great yep. segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is um, yep. academic publishing. So um, we've had yep. we've seen a couple of authors publish their PhD and master's theses on LeanPub, but yes. I'm, I'm quite sure yours is the first original book length academic work. Um, what are your thoughts on self-publishing and academic writing? Um, what are my thoughts? Well, that's a fairly general question. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of a way to put it more precisely. Um, yes, okay. So, so I guess I, I could say, um, do you think that um, self-publishing is compatible with the traditional practice of academic publishing? I think it really is a way for uh, for for academics to do, I think it's it's a very significant way forward for academics to um, uh, to do their work. You know, and you know, let's face it, the open access, for instance, it's, it's not exactly the same as open access, right? Self publishing and open access are not the same, but there's uh, you know there's some parallels and they can intersect, right? Particularly with LeanPub, there's no obligation. I don't think that, you know the books can be free on LeanPub, right? Yes, but um, what. You know, I, I take the question in terms of, in particular, what LeanPub offers, which is uh, to develop important uh, ideas in print, in um, uh, you know, in important documents, um, and 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 to publish them as you're developing them, which I think a lot of 
strong thinkers should be doing anyway. Right. <laughs> you know, and there are some. I think of Aaron Sloman. He's my PhD thesis supervisor. If you look at his website, he's got these presentations that he's and these documents that he iterates. So they just it's the same ideas, but they're developing over time. You track his thinking; it's developing over time. So he's got these different documents, and they uh, you can trace their lineage, right? Um, and there's no it, that that's you know that's what a lot of people are doing, and that's great. Uh, but it's nice to be supported with a structure like Lean Pub that uh, in which this it's basically understood that this is what's going on here is that people are putting their ideas in progress um, on a particular site, and uh, they can receive feedback and update update their documents with the with uh, you know feedback from their peers or from anybody out there. Um, so I, it puts you in a mindset basically of a thinking uh, lean, which is uh, start small, iterate. And get feedback, right? And continue continuously improve your um, your work. So, and you know, if you look at what academics often do anyway, um, there's a lot of rehashing that happens. Sometimes it's the same idea being expressed in different, just in different terms, or for different, you know, for whatever for different pub, uh, publisher or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but often there is there is there's progress. So Lean Pub, something like Lean Pub, I think is. Um, Really opens the door for academics to um, to do this uh, idea development in um, open, honest, transparent fashion. I've often encountered um, a stark contrast between the typical reactions of humanities professors and scientists on the subject of in progress self publishing. Um, can you tell me about the reaction you've had from your colleagues when you tell them about your Lean Pub book? Um, actually, so far, not. I can't say that there's been um, that there's been a a negative or positive response. There hasn't even been a big response so far. Um, there have, I mean, there, I, you know, yes, some people said it's got to go through, you know, um, if you want to be recognized, then you should put it through uh, a, uh, you know, go to a tier one, go to a decent publisher and get it published through there. But, hey, guess what? I'm an adjunct prof. I'm not out there for recognition. I'm, right. But, but um, and you know what? Maybe, maybe that's important for the progress of science as well. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I, but this book, while it is has a lot of practical information, there's a core scientific piece. So I do this book is really uh, proposing some new ideas as well, um, and I mean that aspect of thing is not of things is not something that I've ever been too troubled about. About so I'm not a career publisher, um, so that's not a big deal for me. Okay. Um, and uh, so, but I think you know uh, a professor often will need to, or somebody who wants to get on the tenure track probably. Uh, you know, they're going to be sensitive to those, uh, to those concerns. Right. Um, but what one can also do, uh, parallel processing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to, to do, to, to self publish is not, uh, necessarily an impediment to doing another work, um, in, uh, f- you know, using the traditional ways. And I, as you mentioned, you can, or you mentioned in your, um, in your publications on lead pub site, there's no, nothing, in principle, stopping someone from publishing their books uh, with a regular publisher um, after they've uh, published it uh, on Lean Pub. Yeah, that's actually now, one of our, our hopes um, that people yeah. will do that and that publishers will start to see in progress publishing that way um, so that instead of sort of passively waiting to be approached by agents or um, people um, submitting manuscripts or proposals for manuscripts, they'll actually go, go hunting. Yeah, I think that 
the publishing industry is facing very significant challenges. And what's going to happen is basically a process of, of economic natural selection, right? Like there's going to be some publishers who are going to realize, well, doing this lean pub way is really good. So let's find a way to uh, work with lean pub authors. And this is actually a great way to, you know, to vet work <laughs> and, uh, and, and to get, to get uh, some good content to publish. So, um, I think the publishing industry, and you represent, you're a great example of this, is in transformation. And those publishers, I mean, there, there will be some you know, kind of more dinosaur-like publishers who will, will survive for a long time, but there's a lot of pressure. And I think that um, some of the publishers who are not adapting properly will have difficulty. For instance, one of my big, the big problems I have is um, with platforms like uh, Amazon and the iPad um, even, uh, even even publishing for the iBookstore, um, it's it's that I, I think of it. I think of Kindle as an information jail, right? Hmm. It's so difficult to get information in and out of that out of a, a a Kindle book as a reader, and that's a that's a big problem. So in my book, I talk about how one could learn with PDF readers, and you can see that you know reading with a great PDF reader is is a superior experience to compared to reading with um, uh, reading with, say, Kindle. You know, to be fair, Amazon has improved Kindle, right? But it's still a jail. There's, you know, for I, I, you know, for instance, in one of the techniques that I propose is to mark up a PDF file as you're reading to uh, in, in, indicate the uh, to tag basically the uh, key concepts. Say if that's what you're after, the important thing, important information. That's kind of different. Key concept versus important information versus say. Your knowledge gaps, things you don't understand. Those are three kinds of things that from an educational perspective, there's no doubt it's very important to do that, right? So you go through your file, your document, you can actually mark things up that way. And then when you when it comes time to review or take action on a document, you've marked it up. So you can go and you can quickly list, say with a PDF reader called Skim, you can quickly list a document using the techniques I described, and then to to to, to pull out your say your knowledge gaps. Well, what's the difference between an A student and a B student after they've read a chapter of a physics book in grade 10, for example? Well, if you quiz the grade 10 student on, um, on that chapter, these two grade 10 students, an A and a B student, odds are you'll find that they have very similar, perf- uh, they'll get a very similar grade. The A student actually won't necessarily beat the B student on the first reading of a book, of a chapter. Where the A student shines, however, is if you ask them, what is it that you don't know? What did you not understand? Right? Uh, the A student has a pretty good idea of what he doesn't understand. Okay? B or she. And that's, that makes a lot of sense because how do we improve ourselves? How do we come to understand things better? It's not by focusing on, hey, man, this is the stuff I really got figured out. Right? It's by yeah. focusing on what you don't understand. Right? So if you look at the Kindle, where's the tool for designating, designating a piece of text as a knowledge gap? doesn't exist right so those tools aren't currently available but there's ways of using say skim to do that kind of thing right and that's for knowledge workers that's very important it's also important for students that's that's fascinating um and um yeah it reminds me of um socrates uh, uh yes in, yeah the the wisest man because he's aware of his own his own limits um that's right yeah that's that's fascinating um is there actually so on on the subject of lean pub just um, now yes. that we're nearing the the end of the interview um 
Can you just tell me generally what your experience was like using LeanPub and if there's anything we can do to improve it overall? Um, I've really enjoyed using LeanPub. The, um, I had written my first draft, which is quite an extensive draft, using um, Scrivener, a tool that I really like. Um, and, but then I realized I want to do LeanPub. Well, I had realized halfway that I through this that I, I really want to use LeanPub. I had not used Markdown extensively before. Um, so I needed to convert the content from Lean from uh, Scrivener to uh, uh, to Markdown, and Scrivener's got a tool and uh, to generate Markdown. But I didn't really I couldn't work with that Markdown. It didn't that didn't work for me. So I think I ended up doing an HTML export, and your tool managed to import quite well. I was really surprised. And at first I thought, well, this is not going to be much work. But actually, it ended up taking me several weeks oh, to do okay. it. But you know what? It was a big book. Now, the Lean Pub way of doing it is you start with Lean Pub. So for an author who's starting in Lean Pub, he doesn't face that in Markdown. Doesn't face that problem, right? Yeah. I had a lot. I had huge. This is not a small book, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I had a lot of content. But I did reserve some. Like, there's a chapter that I started that I'm working on from scratch uh, on the Lean Pub pro- uh, platform. So that's the deliberate practice chapter is not complete. Um, that's chapter seven and the conclusion. Um, so, cause I want to go through that experience of, of really, um, adding new content with lean pub. So, so what can I say? I mean, just generally I can point to the fact that that was, um, um, not as easy as I hoped it would be, but okay. So, um, now in terms of other, um, other things that I would like to see in, in lean pub, um, Right now, for some reason, I'm I'm drawing a blank. Well, I, I mean, I had I had proposed certain things, um, you know. I think I had proposed um, certain things. I'd like to see something like um, I'd like to see Lean Pub. Uh, I'd like that there to be a good PDF, a better, an even better PDF reader. And I thought, well, this is this would fit so naturally with Lean Pub, but that that is not really targeted at authors. That's more tar- targeted at, at as at um, at readers, and I realize that LeanPub is really focused right now on uh, supporting, you know, getting authors to get their content out. Oh, that that's true. Um, although we're we're now um, uh, uh, expanding our focus a little bit to be more um, reader centric. Um, okay. So sort of the next the next stage in the in the evolution um, of LeanPub, and in particular, we see the relationship. It, you know, the idea of in progress publishing like this. Um, is 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 relatively new and it it it's a way of potentially establishing a new kind of relationship between authors and readers um yes where where it's, it's, it's yeah so it's 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 you know like authors and readers have always communicated with each other but not not as it were in real time on the subject of the of an evolving book right um and okay. um i would so maybe that might um is there anything along yep. those lines maybe yep. that, that you'd like okay to well suggest? i think of well, here's one thing. Okay, one thing is, um, and we'll come back to th- that particular aspect, but before I forget the other thing, okay. is that um, as an author, I've, uh, you know, I've got, I keep track of my release notes, but I haven't actually published them yet. I published them once, but they're, I didn't like the structure, so I'm going to, I'm going to come back and let people know what's changed between revisions. Now, O'Reilly, as you know, has this feature where, uh, I don't know how they do it, but they must have. This must be software-driven. It is O'Reilly, after all, mm-hmm. right? Where the author basically, in a systematic fashion, is able to 
indicate what's changed in each revision. So right now, if as an author, when, when I publish a new revision, I have the choice of uh, emailing all my readers at once, which I don't like to do. You wouldn't want me to do that either. You know, I've already got, I think, over 60, maybe over 70 releases, I think, oh, wow. uh, of my book. Yeah, because I love this idea. I embrace lean. Talk about it in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you learn lean? I think it's great. So although I did a big bang kind of integration with my first you know, conversion into lean pub, but since then, I've been just doing these minor modifications as they go along. Why not? Just press. I find a typo. Why should I wait? I've just pressed the publish button, right? Uh, or more significant changes. I've done all kinds of changes already. Uh, but I'd like to systematically be able to... Um, indicate the problems to my reader so I'd like to be able I'd like to have a form or a spread even better in markdown or a spreadsheet or something a a comma deliberate a a tab delimited file or something where I can say okay chapter page number uh, uh, original text new text description of change attribution you know to thank whoever found the uh, the Uh, error something something like that would be cool uh, attribution that's a very interesting idea Um, yeah it, it would encourage um, people to respond um, yes, and give them some positive feedback or no positive sense of participation in the in the project. Yeah, and then pe- then then readers could go and they'd have access to this release note on the website. They can see what's changed. Then you can get a sense of the book that well, look, this is this is evolving. You can look at the velocity of change. You can you know it's all, it's kind of cool. And I'm sure you've got all these data in your Git. So um, so that uh, there's endless possibilities even scientifically for you with all your data. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is maybe getting back to your reader concern is um, and, 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 and um, helping my readers who would adopt the kinds of the ways of working with say, PDF and other uh, knowledge, uh, formats, right, that I propose, um, is that, so say a user marks up a document in using Skim, which is a PDF reader. So he marks up a book, my book, say, okay? He okay. finds several key ideas, marks them up, Okay, and then I come out with a new revision, and then what? Well, his annotations are now lost. So here Kindle wins, because Kindle, well, Kindle wins. Kindle, I don't know how Kindle handles updates, but, you know, presumably they do, they try to anchor and uh, readjust, readjust the annotations, right? So a framework like Digo, for instance, would do, does that all the time. If the web page, Digo is a web annotation tool. So you can go to web page and highlight or add notes. And if that web page changes, then Digo has got some logic to try to make a best guess at where the annotation should be anchored. Okay. I've developed okay. tools with uh, Teams software developer previously to do this kind of thing with web content. Um, so right now, the PDF readers such as Skim, they're not um, set up for this. But, you know, if you want to get into that, um, so, then you could... You could, and I think it would be very important to for this tool to be available. Yeah. So, what you would like to see, perhaps, from us is something, perhaps, of a metadata kind that uh, an an external app designed for annotating could then use in order to do things like appropriately anchor a note in a section that that's actually been deleted or something like that. That's one way to do it. You could provide the meta. You could perhaps or you could perhaps provide the metadata. That that would be one approach. I mean, the other approach is basically to uh, collaborate in some other way with a, uh, a small business that's developing an enhanced PDF reader mm-hmm. uh, to uh, that would handle this aspect and maybe other 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 problems. Basically, so the problem of updating, uh, of basically, you know, what's the big picture is 
allow is to allow a PDF reader to um, uh, to continue to delve an evolving document. Now, delve to me means actively read in mm-hmm. this context. Okay. Yeah. Um, and is there anything um, we could do to help you discover more readers or help readers discover you that, that, that occurred to you as you were launching your book and starting to tell people about it? Um, okay, so um, I don't necessarily have solutions, but I, I know I'm acutely aware of the problem, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm sure it's, going to, it's one that's going to be solved. Um, so there is um, – I thought, well – Maybe connect is one one thing that could be done is more on the service side is maybe connecting uh, having I don't um, service providers like uh, editors or book marketers or whatever who view vetted in some way you know that uh, that would help in the book marketing perspective uh, uh, process. Okay, so like Lean Pub approved kind of cover designers and and things like that. Right. Yeah. And on their site on, and, and even on kind of on your site or it could be some, I don't know how integrated you want to do it, but something in that, something in that direction. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's very, but, very, you know, very practical. Um, yeah. Suggestion. I must say, okay. I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm just very happy. I'm really pleased with, uh, with lean pub. I've recommended it to other authors and, uh, um, and I've, I've had a great, great experience with it. And, well, you know, you, for instance, the bibliography thing, we talked about, you know, lean pub, for uh, academics mm-hmm. and the bibliographies weren't being formatted properly because Markdown doesn't handle that. Uh, and, you know, within a couple of emails, the feature was implemented and then all of a sudden, bang, my glossaries and my bibliographies are up to standard that, um, uh, that, you know, uh, that they'd be if I was publishing this uh, with anybody else. Oh, it was hanging indents. I think that Scott. Hanging indents. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Great. Great. Um, well, I guess um, my, my, my thanks for all the positive um, comments um, and, and suggestions. Um, I have one, one last question. I guess is are sure, you sure. are you are you writing are you planning on writing another book or? Like, oh yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, quite ambitious actually. Okay. Um, there's yeah, there's a follow up to this one, which would uh, be um, focusing more on the practical stuff. So, uh, taking basically uh, ideas from chapter three and representing them and extending them. Um, for uh, minus minus the science, so okay. Uh, so the techniques and tools. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. Um, I've got a, um, you know, we've got sleep products coming out, and there's a need for, uh, for, um, for a book on sleep, on uh, specifically on sleep acceleration, uh, sleep onset acceleration. So things okay. like that. So I think I will have I will write more with uh, co-authors, perhaps. Great, great. Um, for <laughs> yeah, well, I'm looking forward to um, reading the uh, full article on um, uh, how to fall asleep. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, very, very good. Um, so, okay, well, thank you very much, Luke, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay.